0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, August 23rd, 2020, at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. It's good to see you guys. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 18 is where we are going to be this morning. Let me turn there, and before we dive into God's Word together, Um, as excited as I am to explore this. Let me set my timer for your benefit. Um, There we go. Um, As excited as I am to explore this text together, there's something else we're excited about around here that I want to let you in on as well. Um, Lord willing, I'll get straight to it. Lord willing, uh, starting next Sunday, August 30th, we are going to open up a second live service here at the 400. Um, Lord willing, we are working on how we're going to do that with the details. But this is the time of year as students return to campus, families settle in from traveling, that normally we adjust our services and our spaces. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to work together as a staff to figure out how to do that most effectively here to open up more seats according to the guidelines that we're trying to adhere to. So starting next week, and here's the details, the 30th at 8.30 and 10.30. That's going to give us 45 minutes in between to be able to clean and do what we need to do to welcome in the the second service. So 8.30 and 10.30, starting next week, the 30th, we are going to open up a, a second live service. So tomorrow morning, when you go online to register to be with us next week, you'll have an option. You'll be able to choose one of those two services. And even as we open up a second service, we are going to continue to do what we're doing online. So That's not going to change. So we will be gathering here twice, but also being online, and we're going to continue to do all that we can to open up as much space as we can while remaining compliant with all of the regulations that are put in front of us during the season. So that's what's coming. Some of you are excited, I think. I don't know. You're already here, so maybe not. Uh, Maybe people watching, you're excited that we're doing that. I don't don't know. We'll see. I didn't get much of a, a response here. But anyway, you're just excited for God's word. So Luke chapter 18, that's where we're going to be. Um, as you're getting there, I, I was thinking about it this week as I was studying. I, I, I don't know if some of you might be like me in this. I'm not sure, but uh, how many of you like documentaries? Like documentaries? I like documentaries, and, and lately I've been captivated by one in particular. It, it is one woman's quest as an archaeologist to find the, the lost tomb of Alexander the Great. I don't know if some of you have seen this already. Um, I've been fascinated by this, and, and she has a pretty good bead as a, as a researcher and a scholar of knowing where she is to look, but really, it's not the, the end result that's captivated me. What, what captivated me, and I was surprised, was the process of expectation, the, the expectation in her heart that drives her and her team to do all of the work that they're doing, to move all of the dirt, to sift all of the dirt, to painstakingly and precisely dig in these areas to try to find this priceless treasure that she thinks is there. I've been so mesmerized by watching their patience and their boldness as they dig and scrape, trying to expose something that's there. And I'll be honest with you, I try to keep a lot of my own personal weird kind of stuffed in, and I don't really let it out, but I'll let it out right here. I've been so fascinated by it that even this last week, as we have attempted at our house to dig out a tree stump, not have it ground out, but actually dig it out. I, I found myself out there on my hands and my knees trying to move dirt, to expose roots, to follow root lines, to make space, to cut roots so that I could get around the tree and try to dig it out. And I've imagined that I'm just one of those team members. It's tedious work, but any other way I think I would have lost interest. But I've imagined myself out there digging through the dirt, exposing tree roots like I'm going to find some great treasure. That's how weird I am. So there you go. Um, But the thing that has captivated me as I was doing it, and I considered the the patience and the boldness and the expectation, uh, it's the process, how this team was expecting to find something priceless, and because of that, they dug they just kept moving dirt. What a thankless job. They just kept moving dirt. Because in their minds and in their hearts, they believed that below that dirt somewhere, they were going to find something that was potentially life-changing. And they'd find something, and it would lead them down a different trail. And they'd just keep going, patiently and persistently. Because they know what they're after is priceless. priceless. And it captivated me over the last couple of weeks, and I even thought about it this week And as I was studying for Luke chapter 18, because it's that same expectation and process, the expectation of coming across something life-changing, a, a priceless treasure that truly drives good study of God's Word. It's as we open up His Word, because it's His Word, that you and I, aided by His Spirit, do the work of digging, moving dirt slowly that we might be able to expose priceless treasure that does have the power of God himself to change our lives in fundamental ways. It's why, if you've ever wondered, the act of preaching is called exposition because the job is to actually expose the priceless treasure of God's word. It's to to move to dirt, to clear the path, to expose the reality of, of what God is saying. And so, as I've been captivated by that By that process, it's because in my heart, I've been captivated by the gift and the opportunity that God has given us through the very thing with the word that he has inspired and left for us. So this morning, what I'm doing is inviting you to come with me as we begin to expose some of God's priceless treasure in this parable. But before we do that, one of the things we have to do, just like the good archaeologists have to do, you you have to determine your, your boundary lines. As I was watching this documentary, they, they had to determine the boundary lines of, of where they were going to dig in order to find what they were looking for. And when we come to God's word, we begin to study it. We, we've got to do the work of defining the boundary lines, so to speak, the context of, of what it is we're reading and what it is we're, we're looking at. And so while the parable comprises eight verses, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, you do realize, we've said it before, that chapter and verse number were later addition to God's word. They were, they were added hundreds of years later to aid in the, the study and really the memorization and the finding of aspects of God's word. They weren't part of the original writings. So when we come to a parable like this and we read it and we come to verse 1 and we see Jesus right here in verse 1 say, and he told them a parable, we realize, wait a minute, he's still talking, he's in the middle of a conversation and so we have to go backwards a little bit. And he told them a parable. Okay, he must have told them other things. So what did he tell them? So you go backwards a little bit in chapter 17 to figure out what this parable is a part of. What's the conversation that's actually happening? And if you trace it back, you'll find that conversation really begins in chapter 17, verse 20, where Jesus is asked by a group of Pharisees about the coming of God's kingdom, and Jesus gives them an answer. And then he also speaks directly in that conversation to his disciples. And when we get to chapter 18, verse 1, this parable that we're looking at this morning, it is part of that conversation. So we know there's a, it's part of a bigger conversation, and then we get to the end of the parable in chapter 18, verse 8, and it says, Will the Son of Man find faith on earth when he comes? We realize that this is all one part of Jesus' full conversation that he's been having about the coming of his kingdom. So as we come to this parable, we, we've got to understand its boundary points. The parable is actually part of Jesus' bigger conversation about what it's going to be like when he returns, when the consummation of his kingdom comes. That's really important. That's going to help us understand exactly what it is Jesus is saying. We know what we're digging for. Rather than coming to this story with an expectation of what we should find, putting something in there, we now know what The context is, and we can begin to do the work of exposing what he has in there for us. If you're familiar with God's word, you you probably already know that this is one of those stories that we tend to naturally read into it what we want to hear. In fact, often the, the main point of this parable is taught, and it's actually a secondary reality of the story. But because we often tend to read it outside of its bigger context, we, we make a secondary point, the main point, and we miss the main thrust of what Jesus is saying. It's not because the main point we tend to make about this parable is something that's wrong, it's just not that it's the main point. And so you've got to do the work of defining your boundary lines. And so as we do that, let's just take a, a quick overview of the land, of the conversation that Jesus is in, so that we can better understand the parable when we get to it, because it's not complex. When you heard Grace read it, it's pretty clear. It's one of the few parables that Jesus gives where he actually tells you the intent behind giving the parable. So it's not hard, but the more you understand its context, the better you are to be able to apply what it is he's saying. So if we go back into chapter 17 and verse 20, this is where the conversation starts. The Pharisees ask him, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And of course, implicit in the question is their expectation of what that kingdom was supposed to be like. When is the kingdom of God coming in such a way that the Son of Man is going to overthrow the tyrannical rule of the Romans and establish the throne of David here in Jerusalem and righteousness and justice reign? When is that geopolitical reality that we have been so longing for and waiting for going to happen? And Jesus' answer to their question baffled them. Jesus basically said, if you're only looking for particular powers and signs like that, you're going to miss it because the kingdom has already come in your midst. If that's what you're looking for, you're actually going to miss it. The king has come, and his reign is established wherever he wins the hearts of men and women and the allegiance of men, women, and children come to him. And then in verses 22 through 25, Jesus reminds them that while the kingdom is quietly but, but powerfully already in their midst, he begins to warn his disciples not to be deceived into thinking that at some point when he returns and his kingdom is finally consummated, that the people might actually miss it. You can sit there and read it this week. They'll say, it's not going to be like someone looking and go, there it is, and, and there it is, and if someone doesn't point it out to you, you'll miss its reality. Don't be mistaken. Don't be mistaken. While it is here now, the king is here, but it's here quietly and subtly. When he returns, no one is going to miss it. That's what he is saying in these verses. Verse 24, he says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. His return isn't going to be one of those things left up to people pointing it out to each other, it's going to be obvious to everyone. But in verse 25, he says, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So his first coming and his second coming are going to be very different from each other. And then in verses 26 through 30, Jesus begins to describe the days leading up to his coming. You can go back and read them this week. He says, like the days of Noah before the flood and the days of Lot before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, so will the days be in the coming of the Son of Man. But here's the thing. You've got to read it, okay? We'll talk about it in just a second. When you think, if you're familiar with those stories, when you, when you think about the days of Noah before the flood and the days of Lot before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, you think of the most vile realities of sin being lived out in the hearts and lives of man, don't you? That's why judgment comes. But listen to exactly what Jesus says. The days of his return are going to be like the days of Noah before the flood and Lot before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. People are going to be eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building. What does that sound like? Does that sound like the fullness of depravity unleashed on earth? It sounds like ordinary everyday life. It sounds like ordinary everyday life. Jesus does not highlight the depravity on display in those days. He highlights in this conversation the reality of ordinariness. Verse 30, he says, So it will be on the day the Son of Man is revealed. The world will be consumed with everyday life when he returns to consummate his kingdom. In verses 31 through 37, Jesus then warns his disciples, On that day, when he returns and everyone will see it, but everyone will be captivated by the everydayness of life here on earth. Don't be found looking to turn your heart back to the things of this world when he returns to finally consummate his kingdom. That's what he's saying in verses 31 through 37. Don't turn your heart back with longing for the world. Don't be like the one, he says, who's upstairs on his roof while all of his goods are down in the house. And when the Son of Man returns, he says, wait a minute, let me go get my stuff. Don't be like Lot's wife. all On the way out, as God has spared them and they're leaving, she turns back. Don't be found like that on the day the Son of Man returns. And Jesus gets real serious. He says, on that day, two will be in bed. One will be taken, another will be left. Two will be working in the mill together. One will be taken, but one will be left. And his disciples go, Well, where? Where are they going to be left? In verse 37, Jesus says, Where the corpse is, where the vultures gather. They're not going to be gathered with the king and his people, they will be left to be gathered with the corpses. On that day, he's already taught when he comes and his kingdom is finally consummated, he will separate the sheep from the goats. This is the reality of his justice and his judgment when he finally comes to fulfill and consummate the fullness of his kingdom. Then, he says, and he told them a parable. So on the heels of warning them not to turn their heart back to the things of this world when he returns, he tells them this story. And it's connected to this bigger conversation because he ends the story saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? So the story is part of the bigger discourse about Jesus' kingdom and its fulfillment. Will his disciples listen and heed his warnings? Or will they be desensitized regarding his return? Will everyday life and the things of this world consume them? Will they remember Lot's wife? Will they keep their heart fixed on Christ and not on the love of this world? Matthew chapter 24, you can read it later on this week. Jesus doesn't tell the exact same story, but again, he's speaking again of the days of his return, and he says this, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because wickedness is multiplied, this is what he says, listen, this is about the days of his return, most men's love will grow cold, but he who endures, whose love endures, to the end will be saved. And so it's fair to say, in context of what Jesus has taught about those days and what he's saying, and speaking about the consummation of his kingdom and his second coming, Jesus is warning his disciples, for those who have ears to hear, for those who are listening to him here, he is warning his disciples about the danger of their love and their heart growing cold. When he returns, will he find fiery love for him in the furnace of their hearts? Will he find faith? Based on his warnings, we see that both our love for him, our confidence in him, our faith, are, are both susceptible to being worn down, not just by persecution, not just by temptation. So fascinating when he talked about the days of Noah and the days of Lot, he didn't deal with the temptation and the depravity, he dealt with the everydayness of life. Our faith in him, our love for him is susceptible to being worn down and and dulled and, and dare I say, even snuffed out. Not just by persecution, not just by temptation, but by the everydayness of life. One writer said this, he said, The good things in life can make us just as insensitive to the reality of God as the gross things in life can. So Jesus' disciples are left in a tremendous battle, which most people don't even realize is going on. The battle to maintain a radical, heartfelt, self-denying faith in Jesus, not only in the threat of persecution and sinful temptation, but also in the threat of ordinary home life and business life, which can blunt all of our sensitivity to God's eternal kingdom. So that, my friends, is the big picture that this particular story finds its place in. Jesus is looking to help us, his disciples, not fall prey to the lukewarmness and misplaced faith that can occur not just in persecution and temptation, but in the everydayness of ordinary life. And so to help them to not grow cold, to help them to not lose faith, and to encourage them in the why, Jesus tells this story. He tells them a parable to the effect... Luke says, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Losing heart's a fascinating phrase. You find it all over the New Testament, only really outside of this in the writings of Paul. But the phrase itself, if you read it and find it in other works during that day, it it comes from a phrase that basically means to give up due to exhaustion. You can even find it in other literature talking about giving up due to cowardice. You can read it either way here. The aim in Jesus' parable here is to help his disciples not give up from exhaustion, to not give up from cowardice, to not lose the fiery love in their heart for him and their confidence in him while they await his return. That's the problem. Losing heart, chilling love, a lack of faith, That's what he's concerned about. And the response he gives is how to not do that. What will be present that will safeguard the fiery love of Christ in the hearts of his people so much so that when he does finally return, he finds confident faith in him, in the hearts and lives of his people. Jesus says it's agonizing, as Mark has taught us this last week, and persevering prayer. And the story shows us the grounds for that. I mean, you could close the Bible right there and walk out and just say, fine, it's agonizing, persevering prayer that I'm supposed to be engaged in in order for the love of Christ in my heart to remain stoked and the confidence in God to remain real and substantial in my heart and walk out. But Jesus isn't going to leave you there. He's going to tell you why. And in telling you why, he's going to help protect you from some of the most common errors that our hearts can find threatening our confidence in him. So let's look at the story. In verse two, we find our, our first character in the story. There's only two. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And so without getting too lost in the weeds, which are just the, the details that they help the story come alive, but they're not necessarily completely necessary for the story, I'll give you a little bit so that you can understand In Jesus' day, the, the, the highest religious court in the land was called the Great Sanhedrin. There were 71 judges that were a part of the Great Sanhedrin. They were all religious experts, experts in God's law, and therefore experts in the oral tradition and teaching of God's law. But they were also human men. They were sinners, which means the Great Sanhedrin was also filled with corruption This is the group you find in the rest of the gospel accounts, all four of them, that ultimately are the ones devising the plan to crucify Jesus. It's a great Sanhedrin. But in larger towns in the region in those days, there was also something that was known as the Lesser Sanhedrin. Each big city had another court system, the Lesser Sanhedrin. And there were 21 judges in the Lesser Sanhedrin, 23 judges in the Lesser Sanhedrin. But then... In the region as well, because it was a territory of Rome, Rome appointed their own municipal judges who would judge criminal cases and and look after the interest of Caesar in those towns. So there were really layers of judges here. And one Jewish scholar writing about these Roman appointed authorities said this, he said they were paid large salaries out of the temple treasury, even though they were typically Gentiles and unbelievers. He said the Jews generally regarded them with the same utter disdain people typically showed to tax collectors. Their official title was prohibition judge, but if you change one letter in the Aramaic, the words always, they become, it becomes the name robber judges. These were men who were utterly despised by God's people. And in the story, it would be fair in the context to assume But the second character we're going to meet, that the widow is coming to the court of one of these judges. This is probably the category of judge Jesus is referring to. And this man was a scoundrel, and he knew it. In verse 4, he self-admittedly says about himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. He owned the fact that he quite blatantly and openly lived in defiance of the first and second commandments. He wasn't moved by God's compassion, And he was making daily decisions that impacted people's lives, and he was utterly unprincipled and untrustworthy. That's the first character. We meet this next character in the next verse, in verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now, this woman has been wronged. She's a victim of injustice, and she is alone. She's a widow. And to find her pleading her case before a judge means that she has not only most likely lost her husband, but she evidently has no brother, brother brother-in-law, father, son, cousin, nephew, or distant male relative or close neighbor who could plead her case for her in the courts. It was very rare that she would be allowed to come before a judge in those days without someone coming to plead her case for her. But here she is. This is someone in Jesus' story who epitomizes the most destitute of the destitute. Here she is, pleading for justice. She's not pleading for special treatment. It's very important you catch that. She's pleading for justice. And the implication in the story is that in pleading for justice, she has grounds for it. Therefore, his response to her should have been pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Widows were part of a special class of God's people in God's word who were particularly protected by God's law. We could spend multiple—maybe the next 10 minutes going through multiple passages in the Old Testament where God speaks very clearly to the leaders of his people, the kings and the judges of his days, into how they were to protect and vindicate the widows amongst them. Despite this man's reputation of not fearing God or man, She comes to plead with him to take her case. And verse four says, for a while he refused. He just dismissed her case outright. But here's the thing, that's what you would expect. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. But she kept coming. She was persistent. And Jesus says, afterward, this man said to himself, though I neither fear God, Which means that if he, fearing God, would incline someone to hear this widow's case and respond favorably, nor respect man, meaning that if he was a respecter of men, he would hear this particular widow's case and have compassion, but though another fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. He gives her justice not because his heart changed, but why? He was tired of her. He was just flat tired of her. In fact, that phrase right there is a fun one, beat me down. Go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 with the apostle Paul. It's actually a boxing term, very specifically used throughout literature of its day. It means to strike violently below the eye. I don't know if he thought that she was going to beat him in the street. I don't know. Maybe it's just a phrasing that Jesus has said was, she was going to pester him to death. I don't know. But not because his heart changed, but because he was tired of her punching him in the eye. He finally gives her what it is she's crying out for. And that's the story. But in verse 6, Jesus begins to unpack it. He says, hear what what the unrighteous judge says. So what he wants his disciples to hear, in particular is what this unrighteous judge says. And this is going to help us avoid some of the errors of application and misinterpretation. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Persistent, agonizing prayer. Prayer that fans the flames of love and faith in the heart. Jesus wants his disciples to understand is fueled first by a right knowledge of God. It is utterly essential that you and I, in doing the work of exposing God's word here, the priceless life changing realities of God's word here, understand that this parable is what's called a parable of contrasts. Jesus uses contrasting from the lesser to the greater to get his point across. And if we don't catch it, we're going to misapply it. Jesus is not teaching his disciples that you and I can wear God down like the widow wore down the cruel judge. That would be utterly antithetical to the character of God that he has revealed throughout his scripture. And I can't tell you the tens of thousands of Bible studies and sermons. I'm sure if I were to go back in the last 15 years of teaching the Bible, I've done it a million times that we come to this story and walk away with that reality. That if we just pester long enough and hard enough, God will vindicate and give us what it is we're asking for. That is utterly antithetical to who He is. He has revealed already to us that He is a Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. In fact, in Luke 11, he says it's his delight to give his children the kingdom. The point Jesus is making is that God is emphatically not like the judge in the story. God is the opposite of that judge in the story. In fact, understanding the parable hangs on the fact that God is different from this judge. God in and of himself Is the utterly most true, most pure, and most just being. He is a God of absolute justice, which means he is the one that we can trust to make right decisions. He is the one that can be trusted to be right in mercy to all who call on him. In his own word, he's revealed to us that he can do no wrong. Does God subvert judgment, Job says, or does the Almighty pervert justice? Of course not. Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Deuteronomy 32, he is the rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are just, a God of truth without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Will not he give justice to his elect, Jesus says, who cry out to him day and night? He's arguing from contrast from the lesser to the greater. If an unjust judge who is not like God Will hear the case of a widow who's a stranger to him, then surely God will hear the prayers and the cries of those who are his. Don't read this and go, Well, I'm like the widow. You're not like the widow. That's the whole point. The widow was a stranger to the judge. We're no stranger to God. Jesus says we're his elect. We're the children of his choosing. We're the ones who from eternity past he determined to set his love upon. So much so that in his timing he sent his own son, the one whom he has delighted in for all of eternity, been completely satisfied by. He sent him to come and to live in our place, the life that God had originally intended for us to live. In his 33 years here on earth, the son of God was acquainted with all of our temptations and trials. And yet he lived with absolute confidence and joy in the Father without sin. So that in God's time, he would offer up his life on the cross as a sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. Dying the death that we deserve to die. A sacrifice sufficient to pay our debts. And we know that it was sufficient because three days later, God raised, the Father raised the Son from the dead. Receiving him into his presence defeating the power of Satan, sin, and death in order that all who repent of their sin receive his son as Savior and King would be adopted into his family as his children. And being one of his children is the single most precious position that you and I can have in this life. We are the utter opposite of the widow. Do you understand that? It means that God the Father set his favor upon you fully and freely. And he is with you and he is for you with all of the might and omnipotence that is his. That's what Paul is trying to tell the church in Rome. If God the Father is for us, tell me somebody who can ultimately be against us and prevail. If if he's for us, who's going to stand there and condemn us? Who's going to bring a charge against God's chosen, God's elect, God's children? It's the Father who justifies. There's no sweeter position to be in in life than to be one of his own. This is the contrast from the lesser to the greater. We're not the widow. Therefore, listen to the argument Jesus is making. If an unjust judge can be moved by persistent petition to help a stranger for whom he has no regard, and no respect, and no compassion, how much more will God help his own chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, Jesus says? Not because you wore him down. Not because he had predetermined a set number of times that you were supposed to ask for something, and you finally got there. Not because you were more persistent than someone else. But because of who he is because of his love for those who were his. This judge listened and responded for all of the wrong reasons. God listens and acts on our behalf to vindicate our cause because he loves us. The judge acted selfishly. The father acts on behalf of his children. Friends, prayer that perseveres and stokes faith and love in the heart is ultimately prayer that comes from a right understanding of God's character. That's what Jesus is getting after. But not just that. It's a right understanding of his character and a right understanding of his chronology. How he actually works in time. Jesus says, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice Speedily. That's a rhetorical question Jesus is asking right there. He's not expecting them to go yes or no. Will he delay long over them? Of course not. No. But here's the thing. You and I tend to lose heart. We'll go with exhaustion, not cowardice. We tend to lose heart because we don't understand God's timing or purpose in things. And as we begin to lose heart, we can find ourselves preoccupied with questions like when and why and how could you. And our hearts begin to challenge the, the goodness and the justice of God, his character, based on his chronology. And there's two layers of understanding here, not like hidden and exposed, no, like two ways to apply this in the reality of, of everyday life. The first comes by remembering the context of the story. He's talking very specifically about Jesus' recoming, the consummation of the kingdom, He's talking about the day when complete justice comes, when tears are wiped away, when all wrongs are made right. Are we crying out to God persistently and agonizingly for this day? Is our heart longing for this day? Is our heart set for this day? While he may delay, his answer comes speedily, Jesus says. It doesn't mean the answer for his justice will come immediately. It means that when it happens, it will come quickly, like the coming of the Lord will happen suddenly. Are our hearts longing for the day of his justice to finally be vindicated? Well, the days we live in are so hard, they're so exhausting. We can be so confused into thinking that our own wisdom and our own strategies and our own efforts can bring about the justice we so demand. Are our hearts captivated by the promise of a good and a sovereign God to bring about his justice in his time? This is the very thing Jesus is speaking explicitly to in the story. I love how John Piper said it again. He says it so much better than I ever could. He said, Faith is the furnace of our lives, all right? If you need pictures, close your eyes, you can just see it, all right? He describes the picture so well. Faith is the furnace of our lives. Its fuel is the grace of God, and the divinely appointed shovel for feeding the burner is prayer. If you lose heart and lay down the shovel, the fire will go out. You'll grow cold and hard of heart. And when the lightning flashes from sky to sky and the Son of Man appears in glory, according to what Revelation 3.16 says, he will spit you out of his mouth. Here in the story, two will be sleeping in one bed and one will be taken to the other left. And the test will not be whether you once walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or made a vow or were baptized. The test will be whether you continued in prayer and did not lose heart. Are our hearts captivated and longing for the day in which God has promised to come when the fullness of his kingdom will be consummated and the justice of God will be laid bare on earth And we will see him and be made like him. And the tears are wiped and the wrongs are made right. Are we praying and longing for that day of justice to come? That's the immediate context but there's secondary reality. There is another way that we also work through what he's saying here that has impact on how we live. And this is where we tend to go whenever we read the story. Because we kind of read it out of its bigger context sometimes. There is the application to our confidence in God's character, our love of God, our desire to listen to him. There is the everyday reality to how we see him and and how we respond. We pray, even now, agonizingly and persistently, not because we think we can beat God down to do something he wasn't predisposed to do already, but because we know and trust his goodness and know that he withholds no good thing from his children. This is the place in everyday life where a right understanding and confidence in God's character begins to collide, where we see his utter and complete sovereignty mingled with the reality of the purity of his goodness. This is where these two things come together in everyday life. You and I can trust that God will act in perfect harmony with his character for his glory and our joy, and we can trust completely in his sovereignty. We can know that what it is we are crying out for, the salvation of a family member, a a change in circumstance or situation, a a reality that we're dealing with with an illness or or a life-threatening situation, whatever it is we're praying for, we can come to him with confidence, knowing that he is all-sovereign and All powerful, there's nothing that stands in his way. With a single word, everything can be changed. And we have complete confidence in that. But then he commands us as his children to come to him in prayer and ask of him the things we want to see happen. And because he is good, we know that he will bring about in his time the right answer to that prayer for his glory and our joy. So we don't have to hedge our bets. We can actually come to him with confidence knowing that he is going to do the right thing at the right time for his glory in this situation and we can be free to cry out to him as his children to do that which we think is right in the moment. Sovereignty doesn't diminish the desire or the delight that you and I have to go to him. It's in going to him because we know he's sovereign and he's good that he is delighted in our dependence. I'm telling you, I wish I understood this earlier. I, I really do. Uh, most of you know, And years ago, we, we lost a child, lost a son. and uh, There was a, that season in our life, I didn't fully grasp this. And so we were were with a lot of people who, who tended to think that if we just beat God down hard enough, whatever it is we wanted would happen. And so in the end, when he died, we were left sitting in a position going, I guess I wasn't as faithful as the widow. I guess maybe if I had done it one more time, like golf, like if you hit that perfect shot one more time, if I just prayed one more time, Maybe I shouldn't have gone to bed that night, if I should have stayed up all that night. Because if we pester him hard enough, he'll be predisposed to do something that he wasn't predisposed to do because I was so pestering of him. I was so persistent, I was so perseverant. I wish I had understood that I could have complete and utter confidence in his sovereignty. He was going to do that which was right and best for his glory, his purpose, and his time, and in my joy, so I could freely come to him to do that which I I wanted him to do so desperately as a dad. But I was so confused at how to do it. This is where it comes head-to-head in everyday life. Persistent prayer is just a demonstration of confidence in the character of God's attributes and confidence in the goodness of his timing. so you and I don't have to lose heart. We don't have to give up in exhaustion. We can actually pray with confidence, not because we know that precisely what it is we're asking for is going to be given, but in the goodness and sovereignty of the one to whom we're coming to, we know he will always give what's right. And perseverance is is way less about getting what it is we want And more about actually believing that He wants to hear us and that He does hear us and He will always give us what it is we need, which is often something that you and I have to grow into. We don't even realize it at the moment. See, God is never bothered when we come to Him in faith. Unlike this judge, remember, it's a contrast. He's never bothered when we come to Him in faith. And perseverance is trusting this reality of who he is as we keep asking for what is right as far as we know it to be right until he does what is right, either by giving us the very thing we're praying for or correcting our understanding. When the Son of Man comes, Jesus says, will he find faith on earth? Will he find a church agonizing persistently in prayers? a demonstration of confidence, of faith in him, who, while at times may delay his answers, but will always act decisively and justly for his people. Church, a right confidence in the character of God, which shapes the chronology of his actions, is the shovel that throws the coal into the furnace of faith, that enables us to be the kind that don't lose heart as we await the coming of the Son of Man. Will he find faith when he returns? Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond. Father, I confess I freely don't, I don't long for your return as you would expect, as one who Enjoys your grace, has enjoyed your mercy, who's confident in an eternity with you. I I find myself probably more like that person in the story up on the roof who's like, okay, you're coming. Let me let me go grab this and take it with me real quick. Lord, I ask that you by your spirit would you would fix our hearts aright on the hope that's to come when you when you return. And the fullness of your kingdom and all of its realities will be consummated and and justice will finally come. Justice we we sometimes don't even know how to ask for. Lord, fix our hearts rightly on the promise of your return. Lord, let us be a people. Let, Let us as a church be a people that it could be said. On the day of your return, you find fervent love evidenced in persevering, agonizing prayer. Not because we can get you to do something you you didn't want to do, but because precisely our confidence and our joy and our delight in who you are. We ask this morning that you would work that as a reality in our hearts and in our lives by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.